0: The reason why we go verse by verse through the scriptures is that often the scriptures address things that we normally wouldn't think to talk about in a modern worship service in New Jersey in the year 2022. But amazingly, as we just go through this, sometimes we discover that just the next section is just what we need to hear. I've had several people tell me just last week's message, part one on this series, was exactly what they needed to hear. Even talking about such a difficult topic to address as persecution. Certainly not a fun topic, but a needed topic to cover. Because as the world grows in its hatred towards Christians, hearing Jesus say that in a way we can expect this, that over the history of the world, this is normative, uh, it's comforting to know, to hear from our Savior, to expect it. It makes sense of our experience, in other words, is what I'm trying to say. And really, there, there really was no good place for me to conclude last week. We just kind of ran out of time as I was preparing. So let's, with that backdrop of persecution in mind, I'm going to jump right back into verse 21 where we left off last time. Because the next verse in this series continues the thought saying, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Is anything absolutely more tragic than that thought? As a father myself, that's... uh, You can't imagine such a thing. But... It absolutely does happen. It's happened all throughout the history of the world. And before we dive into that, you know the the principal point is largely applicably true to all of us. The gospel absolutely will divide families. Not always violently, like we saw in the text, but it happens. I mean, I'm sure some of you are the Jesus freak outcast of your family, are you not? <laughs> or some of you may, maybe, maybe when you came to Christ, everyone was like, What happened to you? Oh, you've changed since you became a Christian. What's up with you? Or maybe. Or maybe the opposite happened in your family. Maybe it was a child that grew up in your home that was, grew up and was like, "What is up with you? You're not with the times. What's you're different? I'm not like you." It, that's the divi- that at the very least is a division that we experience as Christians. But to this day, many are put to death for their faith, even by people in their own families. As we discussed last week, I mean, this this book itself is illegal in some 52 countries today. And there are many places where if you convert to Christianity from the prominent cultural religion or belief in the area, you can be put to death legally in many countries. And so, who's going to discover if you have a private faith in Jesus? who's going to discover you reading from the Bible, specifically the New Testament. It's going to be a family member. And so in those areas where it's illegal, it's often a brother, a parent, a father, who thinks that they're serving God by pointing it out and having this done to you. Tragic, but it happens. And the reason they do so is in verse 22, where it says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We really covered this last wor- this this point last week, but because you're a Christian, the world is going to hate you because the world hated Jesus first. Uh, because you don't live by the same set of values as so many people in this world. You don't just support whatever the popular opinion of the culture is at the time. You you are, as Martin Luther, the great reformer, said when he said his conscience is held captive to the word of God. And because you don't do as so many others do, put put their finger up in the air and see which way the cultural wind is blowing, you are seen as behind the times you are viewed as old fashioned for your beliefs for holding to biblical values when in reality no we're, we're we're taking a stand we have principles we know in whom we have believed there there's there's a beauty of that 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 that's missing so, and really, it's I look at this world, and it's there they might say horrible things about us or hold hostile beliefs towards us, but really, it's pity that I see to the culture around us that doesn't have a foundation for what they believe, doesn't have a foundation for their ethics, they are just going with the wind, whatever the cultural believes they believe these days, but that being said. The, it's, it's, it's so important that the con- to understand the context of what this verse is saying, that people will hate you because you are a Christian. This verse doesn't apply to you if people hate you because you're a jerk anyway. I, I was out doing an outreach one time, and this guy, this guy, bless his heart, he comes up to me afterwards, and he's like, oh man, the persecution's really hard in this area. Did you hear some of the things that they called me? And I just wanted to say to him, dude, I wanted to slap you. (laughs) Did you you hear some of the words coming out of your mouth? I wanted to slap you. (laughs) You don't get a pass to be a jerk just because you're a Christian. They have to hate you because you are a Christian, for your foundational beliefs, not your behaviors. Please hear that. The world hates you. you got to make sure it's for the right reasons. But this verse continues to say that even though we might be hated by all, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the simplest belief, in the simplest terms, if you endure whatever persecution the world is throwing at you, whether it be the little bit of animosity that we face here in the States or the real brutal persecution that is taking place all over the world, and other areas that aren't so fortunate if you endure whatever that persecution looks like without denying the faith, holding fast to what you believe and not denying it, you will be saved. Where even if they persecute you to death in other countries, if you endure to the end, you will be safe in the arms of Jesus afterwards. We have the comfort as Christians of knowing that we know that we know where we're going on the other side of eternity. And this verse, above all else, is a comfort when it says "He who endure, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is a comfort for those facing the literal brutal persecution that if they endure, they will be saved. The reality of eternity has been the great comfort for the persecuted church for many centuries. And it remains true today. You know, I can put up with whatever little bit of mocking that I might have to put up with for my beliefs. Because I know where I'm going. I know what is true. I have that assurance. So I can live with that now because I know what is to come. But there is an opposite side to this verse. Implying the one who does not endure to the end will not be saved. Luke 12.9 says, the one who denies me, Jesus of course, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Think of it this way, persecution is the great separator between genuine faith from the heart and more superficial surface level faith. Here's what I mean, I mean there have been times in our country where it was easy to be a Christian. People were literally jumping on the bandwagon, becoming Christians. It was easy. It was the cultural norm at the time in this country to be a Christian. Many of you remember those times. But when your faith costs you something, those who were just jumping on the bandwagon because it was the popular thing to do, suddenly want to get off the ride. This isn't what they signed up for. They didn't sign up for animosity, persecution, and hatred. They, they they want to get off. And at that point, they recant their faith, deconvert, apostatize. There's all kinds of words people use these days. It all means the same thing. To have formally proclaimed one thing and renounce it and live another way. But the one who has genuine faith will endure to the end. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to have perfect faith in every single circumstance. It doesn't mean we're always going to say the right thing at the right time to glorify God in front of people who don't yet know him. But the, that our faith as a whole will endure to the end. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was regretfully reminded of one minister who lived during a time of great persecution and under the bru- just brutality of torture, uh, renounced Christ so that they would stop. And I-, I can't judge that man because, goodness, he's been through far more than I could even wrap my mind around in terms of pain. But afterwards, as soon as he was able to walk again, giving you an idea of how bad his torture was. When he was able to walk again, he was seen in the streets crying aloud, call me Peter, for I have denied the Lord. Now you look me in the eyes and tell me that man's faith wasn't genuine. Regretfully, he had a second chance and he endured the second time. It's a hard topic to talk about. But I believe as a whole, persecution, animosity, hostility, it as a whole reveals who you are. It doesn't so much change who you are. The Bible details the deep changes that happen in your life when you become a Christian that I don't think somebody can just renounce and say, I don't want this anymore. When you read 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You see how black and white that language is? Well, how about Ephesians 5.8? That at one time you were, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Literal light and dark difference there. Literal night and day difference. You can't just renounce that kind of complete whole person, whole self change. So, in light of that, I can't tell from just looking at you whether or not you are a Christian or not. But if you believe this truly from the heart, there is no turning back. But I believe on the other side, though, that there are many who think they are Christians but aren't actually. They're bandwagon Christians jumping on board, you know, when it was popular. Or maybe it's a cultural thing, or maybe it's a family thing for you. It's not a belief from the heart. It's not a personal relationship that we enjoy with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And there's a, there, that is what this night and day difference is. And persecution is one of those things that just might reveal who we are. We must move forward, though, as Jesus gives us very practical advice in verse 23 for how Christians, especially Christian missionaries who Jesus is commissioning in this section, should handle persecution. In verse 23, that when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In other words, don't court your own persecution. Don't don't ask for it. (laughs) Be wise as serpents, as we covered last week. Unless God tells you otherwise, if if you are being violently persecuted in one area, flee to the next and go there instead. And why would he say that? Because you won't have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So from a practical standpoint, that means there is plenty of work to be done. The gospel has not reached all the ends of the earth yet. There are still many who have not heard the good news that Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins to offer you the glory of eternal life for those who repent of their sins and believe in his name. So we, so go to those people. The mission of reaching the world with the gospel will never be complete. Not until Jesus comes in divine glory at the second coming. That's when, you know, mission accomplished will be announced. But until then, if you hit a roadblock, go around it. Find another avenue for the gospel. Find those who are hungry to hear the good news. So let's get practical for a moment. What about South Amboy? Let's let's look at this lens ourselves. Are we facing violent persecution here in South Amboy? No. Is every person in this town a Christian? (laughs) I think we all know that. So then, guys, we still have work to be done. The work is not yet done here in South Amboy. We need to be engaged. We need to offer others the hope that we have, the peace and assurance that we have of peace with God. There's many who need to hear this hope. This world needs hope, doesn't it? And I know no greater hope than the good news of what Jesus has done for me. God has given us a light to take to our community, And we need to take it there ourselves. Jesus then reminds his disciples one more time about the need to have proper expectations for this mission that he's sending them on in verse 24. As we wrap it up, as it says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, or Beelzebub in some of your translations, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul or Beelzebub was a term that referred to the prince of demons or the ruler of demons that we know today as Satan. So think about what Jesus is saying here in this verse. They hated Jesus so much that they called the son of God, Satan. That takes a lot of hate. The Gospels mention multiple times that he was called Beelzebub by his detractors. So it was probably a common insult that Jesus' detractors probably told him all the time, sadly. Or at least said about him commonly. So Jesus sets up a simple point. If the culture is so against Jesus and against his teachings that they will call Jesus himself Satan, what are they going to call you guys? Because Jesus was at least the holy and perfect son of God who was sinless. Some of the things the world is going to call us aren't going to be completely unfounded because we all have sin in our lives. We don't live up perfectly to the holy and perfect standard that God has given us, which is why we need a savior. But it makes those slanderous remarks have a sting to it. But we need to remember where it comes from. You won't believe some of the things I have been called over the years simply because I believe in Jesus. I've been called a bigot. I've been called homophobic. I've been called transphobic. I've been called ignorant, prude, backwards thinking, uncaring, misogynistic, and a list of profanities that I can't even mention from the pulpit. I've been called every name in the book. And for the record, I am none of those things. And those of you who know me know that. I have been called all of that simply because I love Jesus. Simply because he is my Lord and Savior. Simply because I have the audacity to believe what Jesus taught in his word. So as the people in our increasingly lost and confused culture throw every insult in the book at you guys too, because I know I can't be the only one. Just remember it comes from the same spirit, with a lowercase s mind you, the same spirit that called Jesus Satan. Is the same spirit that prompts people to say hurtful and untrue things about you guys too. Especially in today's world where we don't want to have a conversation about these things. We don't want to talk about difficult or complex issues. We just want to say the worst possible thing about the other side of the aisle. We don't actually want to have a conversation and build relationships with people who might see things different than we do. Yes, the truth is the truth, but There's a way of discussing it that is missing in our culture. And the world is not going to be quick (laughs) to rectify that when they can just call you all of the above and just move on with the conversation, sadly. In this next section after this, starting in in the following verses, Jesus offers us some more words of comfort that sadly we're going to have to really save for next week. But fortunately we at least have the comfort that we saw in our first reading this morning. And I love that verse that we covered in, in uh, John 16 that sets up a necessary reminder to tie this all together. Where Jesus said in John 16, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I love that truth. I don't have to win all the battles. I don't have to conquer this world. We don't have to set up large Christian empires in Jesus' name. He's already won. He already has the victory through the cross. That's the victory. And frankly, at this point, we're just telling other people about the victory. He has already won giving people the opportunity to meet Jesus as their Savior before so many will meet him as judge. But I I think I even said it last week, if we need comfort, just read the back of the book. We win. And that is comforting news to each of us. I actually want to close with something a little bit different, actually, if you don't mind. Um, Our closing hymn today is going to be I have decided to follow Jesus. We're not gonna, I'm not gonna make you guys sing it now or anything like that. I'm not gonna flip the script that much. But I wanna suggest to you guys that that hymn has deeper meaning than I think most of us could ever realize. When you dig into the history behind the hymn, you will never sing it the same. It started when a group of missionaries had reached India on the heels of a revival that was taking place at the time. The climate was extremely hostile to their teaching, but they still were allowing them to spread their message. So they continued preaching, they continued preaching, a long time goes by, nobody ends up believing in this small tribe that they had gone to, until eventually one family finally repented and believed the gospel. And much to everyone's surprise, once that one family believed, that family's Faith became contagious, spread through the whole tribe. Many people were starting to, be, to believe. But the village chief was furious about this and ordered the man to be publicly executed, him and his family, unless they publicly renounced their faith. And once they were gathered together, the whole village was there. Given the ultimatum, the man who was moved by the Holy Spirit representing his family said, I have decided to follow Jesus. The chief was enraged by his refusal and ordered the execution of his children in front of him. And after their faith was sealed, before the whole village, the chief looked at him again and offered him another chance to to renounce his faith and he would be spared. The man replied, though no one joins me, still I will follow. He then proceeds to murder his wife in front of him. He was asked one last time with nothing left to renounce his faith, to renounce Jesus Christ. And at that point, he uttered profound words, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. And he was executed. How's that for someone whose faith endured to the end? But after the man was executed, something unexplainable happened. The chief was in shock. He couldn't understand why a man would lose his life and his own family over a man who lived 2,000 years ago, on another continent. He couldn't understand why he would lose so much over the name of Jesus. Why was this man so important to him? And in something that can only be explained by a movement of the Spirit of God, the chief spontaneously declared before the whole village, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And one by one, slowly but surely, the rest of the village joined in, moved by this man's faith. They, so many, received Christ that day and believed in the gospel that this man had been proclaiming alone for so long. And this song was written in memory of this man's last words, where the persecution that was taking place on him and his family gave way to revival in that area. And you'll even notice in your hymnals when we turn to it later, you'll, say, you'll notice, on the, I think it's at the bottom, it mentions it's a folk melody from India. It's where this song came from. This man died having no idea what was going to happen next. But his death led to the salvation of an entire tribe, an entire people. Now doesn't that sound like somebody else we all know? Where the death of Jesus, the death that purchased your salvation was also the most unjust punishment ever committed, also stemming from hatred and persecution. But God brought more good from The death of Jesus and even his life and his messages. Because it's through his death that we have life. It's through his death that my sins have been atoned for. It's through his death and resurrection that you too have been offered eternal life in his name. Where God took the greatest evil that ever took place. The unjust death of the sinless Savior. And brought forth life for all who believe in his name that is what Romans 8, 28 is talking about. That is what I mean. When we say that God works all things together for good, that's what I mean. Even persecution, God can work together for his good. And we don't always see it in this lifetime. The man whose story and testimony I just proclaimed, he sure didn't. He, as he took his last breath, had no idea of what would happen next. But he trusted in God and God did the impossible next. So too, may we trust in God with whatever circumstances before us, trusting that if need be, God can also do the impossible again and glorify his name in each of our situations. Thanks be to God. Amen.